Good morning. I'm excited about our time together in God's Word. I'm also excited about uh, this week. Uh, This week obviously uh, references uh, our celebration of Thanksgiving, and I pray that your heart will truly be centered upon upon the goodness of our Lord uh, made so clear to us through Jesus Christ. So I'd like to begin with this question. Are you a don't have or a do have person? Meaning this, are you a don't have where it's easy for you to look and recognize things in your life you just don't have? Or are you a do have person where you easily see every part of your life as a blessing from God? The Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. And today I want to encourage you to to count your blessings, to understand how good is our God. You know, in the last 24 hours, my own cell phone has, has received advertisements that tell me how I can count my money, count my steps, and count my calories. And on and on and on could be added other like advertisements. We're, we're constantly being challenged to count those uh, parts of life that we hold dear or that we value. Today, straight from God's Word, uh, we're going to be challenged uh, to, to look at the blessings of God in a way that brings about a spirit of contentment. Welcome to the conclusion of our teaching series, Live It, where we've discovered three resolves from that small book in the New Testament, the book of Philippians. These resolves help us to live out the joy of our faith. The first resolve was invest in the gospel. We heard the Apostle Paul himself uh, write these words with passion in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 4 and 5, when he announced his, his joy over the partnership of the gospel he shared with the church at Philippi. Fast forwarding to chapter 3, we heard the same enthusiasm from Paul when he, when he wrote those words in chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. He summarized that entire chapter that began with rejoice. And so again, Paul recognized the true joy of our faith comes when we invest in the gospel and when we anticipate heaven for our citizenship is there. But now we come to chapter four, the last chapter of this powerful little book in the New Testament. And we, we hear something being taught in chapter four, verse 10 and 11. In fact, we hear Paul saying uh, these words as he writes instructively to this small congregation in the Roman colony of Philippi. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Verse 11, not that I speak from want. Here's the key. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. Marshall Shelley is the editor of Leadership Journal, a popular publication among churches. He tells the following story that I think will help you and I to truly recalibrate toward this spirit of contentment that Paul proclaims in Philippians chapter 4. 
Marcia Shelley tells this story. My wife's father is a Kansas farmer. He spent a lifetime raising wheat, corn, milo, beef, along with some sheep and chickens. One morning, while I followed him around the farm, we talked about the differences between city living and a rural lifestyle. Most city folks I know expect each year to be better than the last, he said. They think it's normal to get an annual raise to earn more this year than you did last year. As a farmer, I have good years and bad years. It all depends on rain at the right time, dry days for harvest, and no damaging storms. Some years we have more, some years we have less, he writes. And then Shelley comments, it was one of those indelible moments of stunning clarity. And that law of the harvest, some years being fat and others being lean, applies to much more than agriculture. Growing in spiritual maturity requires gratefully accepting the seasons of more and the seasons of less that God weaves into the specific areas of our lives. Contentment, when things are abundant and when things are not. Contentment. Contentment references the, the quality or the state of being satisfied within. And so today I ask you, do, do you truly feel content? You don't have to really like your circumstances or think they're the greatest. But are you content regardless of the quality or state of life? Because there is an inward satisfaction. And Paul would add a satisfaction that only Jesus can bring. Martin Luther wrote this. Next to faith, the highest art is this. To be content in the calling in which God has placed you. I love that. Next to faith, the, the highest art of our spiritual lives is to be content with what God is doing in your life at this very moment. But if you know that full quote from Luther, he concluded by saying, this is something I have not yet fully learned. And perhaps for all of us, learning the spirit of contentment may be an ongoing lesson and maybe sometimes a uh, a very evasive a lesson that we really can't seem to grasp. But, oh, we are called today by God's word to rest content in this present moment. I'd like to build a, a correlation with you from the verse we just read to the very beginning of this book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. In that passage, Paul thanked the Philippians for their partnership. And then here in chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, it seems that uh, Paul is putting another bookend to this beautiful message that we know as the letter to the Philippians. The front bookend, I'm grateful for your partnership. And then the back bookend, oh, I'm grateful that you've revived your concern for me. Between these two statements is a context, a human context that you and I really need to understand if we are truly to rest content in this very moment in which we live. Now, here's the human context. Paul wrote this. I'm glad that you have finally revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked 
opportunity. Now, I love how Paul was pretty straightforward with the church at Philippi. You've been good to me, but up to this point, you've, you've lacked opportunity. Now, Paul's not chiding the church. He's simply stating a fact. When you could not get the help to me, I was in want, but I was still very content. And when you sent help, I felt I had abundance. But my contentment did not increase because I am truly content in whatever state I'm living within. That was Paul's message. That was his instruction to the church at Philippi. He mirrored contentment for them. And this is a timeless application that is before you and me today. How can we truly rest content in this moment? Paul wrote, I greatly rejoice. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now, I'd like to share with you the the key term in this entire book. And the key term is from the Greek phrone, which actually can translate concern or thoughtful love. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul used that term. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul used the term again in chapter 3, verse 15. He uses it a third time, and here in chapter 4, verse 10, a fourth time. And and this, this term, beautifully interpreted as care or thoughtful love, becomes the very reason and the very seedbed for Paul's heart of contentment. And Paul writes, you've, you've been concerned for me, whether you were able to, to tangibly meet my needs or not. And I am learning to be content in each and every situation. This is a beautiful, endearing letter that concludes with personal thoughts of, of, of love and care, all resting on this powerful principle of contentment. Paul writes that I rejoice greatly. That phrase is not used any other time in Paul's letters, and it's not used any other time in the whole New Testament. It is a very unique phrase where Paul reaches deep to say, I rejoice greatly. And why? Because of contentment. How can you live out the joy of your Christian faith? By resting content in this very moment. I'd like to share with you five principles for life taught to us by contentment. The spirit of contentment as presented by Paul within this human context of his relationship with Philippi teaches us five principles by which we need to live. First, contentment has to be learned. This is very important. There are many who would say, there are times I'm, I'm content, there are times I'm not. Paul would write, learn to be content in every circumstance. For this was Paul's testimony. Paul writes in verse 11, I'm not speaking from want. I'm not reminding you that you were not able to get gifts to me because I'm content. And there was a time that Paul was being transferred from Caesarea to the Roman prison. And many say that during that transfer, There was no one that could have access to Paul. During that time, Paul writes, I was still very content. He had to learn 
contentment. This word contentment comes from the Greek word autarkes, which was a word also used by the Stoics in Paul's day. Now stay with me for just a moment concerning the historical background of of Paul's life. The Stoics uh, uh, really boasted that they could find uh, internal fulfillment regardless of outside adversity. So when the vicissitudes of life were pushing against oneself, the Stoics uh, boasted that they could find satisfaction within. And so they use this term, autarkes, which means contentment. Paul borrows that term because Paul was a, was, was a, a well-educated man. He borrowed that term from the Stoics, from the philosophers of his day, but he adopted the term into a spiritual application. Paul writes, I'm content, but I've learned this content from my life of faith, not from any fulfillment that I can gain in and of myself. When Paul wrote, I have Learn contentment. He's referencing a, a tense uh, in that verb that speaks of completed action, but has uh, linear consequences. Uh, making this simple, Paul writes, I have learned linearly through my whole life as a follower of Jesus how to be content. This was a life lesson. This was something that Paul grasped. He understood that even when he was absent of of those needs that he cherished and of those provisions that were a blessing to him, God was just as powerfully intervening in his life. Jesus was just as much present in the lean years as in the abundant years. And so Paul writes, I learned contentment. Today, dear follower of Jesus, you need to grasp this first principle. Contentment has to be learned. Uh, I'd love to tell you this story from a father. A very wealthy family is referenced here. And the story is told of, of a father of that wealthy family who took his son on a trip in the country to show his son how poor people lived. Here's the story. They spent a couple of days and nights on a farm that the father had had aligned, and and uh, they were to consider uh, how a very poor family lived. On their return trip home, the father asked the son, how was the trip? The son replied, it was great, dad. The father said, did you see how poor people can be? The son said, oh, yes, I did. And the father asked, so what did you learn from the trip? The son answered, I saw that we have one dog and they have four. We have a pool that reaches to the middle of the garden. They have a creek that has no end. We have imported lanterns in our garden. They have stars at night. We have a patio that reaches to the front yard. They have the whole horizon. We have a small piece of land to live on. They have fields that go beyond sight. We buy our food. They grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us, but they have friends that protect them. With this, the boy's father was speechless. And then the son added, thanks, dad, for showing me how poor we actually are. This is an amazing story because the lesson, again, is is noticing the blessings and the goodness of our God. And when the scripture proclaims that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father, the scripture then says "There's there's no shifting shadow with God. There's no shadow of turning. God is faithful. He's He's 
good and and he he blesses and and maybe we need a reality check like the son of this wealthy father maybe we need to understand that god's blessings are all around us and perhaps we need to learn contentment there's a second principle taught to us by the spirit of contentment contentment teaches us to live unattached from the non-essentials and completely dependent upon God for our needs. Let me restate this. Contentment teaches us to live unattached from the non-essentials in life and to live fully dependent upon God for our needs. There's a unique verse in the scripture in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9.12 gives us a unique look into the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul is referencing that as an apostle, he certainly had a right to depend upon the financial gifts of his converts or of those churches that he helped to plant. But Paul writes this in response to the expectation that he would depend upon them for help. If others share the right over you, do I not the more? Nevertheless, I do not use this right, but I endure all things so that I will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul is simply saying, I am preferring not to depend upon any measure of of affluence or of gifts except that which comes straight from God's provision in my life. So Paul is referencing a contentment that taught him to be unattached to the non essentials. The reason Paul wrote that to the Corinthian congregation was because Paul learned to live with with basic provisions in his journey as a missionary and as a church planner throughout Asia Minor. Paul was not setting a standard necessarily. Paul was simply exhibiting a lifestyle of contentment that was free from attachment with non-essentials. Well, there's a difference in having a life that's blessed and then having a life of non-essentials that that you're attached to for your well-being and for your fulfillment. Paul would teach against that. And Paul would say, no, our our contentment far overshadows the non-essentials and we trust God for the needs in our life. Uh, The biblical scholar F.F. Bruce gives this description of Paul Uh, as referenced here with contentment. And Bruce writes these words, Paul traveled light. His possessions were restricted to the clothes he wore and perhaps some tools of his trade and the few papyrus and parchment rolls that he had with him. He could survive on very little. Uh, This again is not setting a necessary standard, but giving us a testimony of one who truly lived unattached from the non-essentials. And this moves us to to be reminded of the kingdom principle Jesus himself taught in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. But I'd like to read this verse from the Passion Translation. So above all, constantly chase after the realm of God's kingdom and the righteousness that proceeds from him. Then all these less important things will be given to you abundantly. Paul is exemplifying a life that seeks first Jesus. Paul's contentment rested upon this kingdom principle to seek first all that involves 
the mission of Christ and his work in our lives as our Lord and as our Savior. This encourages us to live unattached from the non-essentials and to live completely dependent upon God's provisions in our lives. There's a third principle contentment teaches us. Contentment teaches us to avoid a desire for more. Contentment teaches us to avoid that desire for unnecessary acquisition, a desire for more. I'd like to share with you the words of Christ from from Luke chapter 12, verse 15 through 21. I just want to read these words to you because they powerfully speak for themselves. And Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then Jesus told this parable. The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus taught these words to remind us of the danger of storing up through greed or storing up through covetousness uh, goods and deeds that that are uh, that are fulfilling us falsely and could likely for some replace a passion for Jesus Christ. And so contentment teaches us to avoid a desire for more. This is captured again in this word contentment that Paul proclaimed when he wrote, I'm content in every circumstance. There's a fourth principle contentment teaches. Contentment teaches us, oh, and I love this, contentment teaches us the joy of a satisfied life. The reason that we can live unattached from non-essentials and the reason we can avoid a desire for more is because of the joy of a satisfied life. Paul proclaimed soul sufficiency, but not as the Stoics in and of themselves. He proclaimed the sufficiency of his soul because of a message we find in verse 13. We move out a bit from the verse that we focused on, verse 11, and now we we see the context, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why is it that Paul could be content both in in want as well as in abundance? Well, the very reason is in verse 13. He could do whatever he needed to do through Jesus Christ who gave him the strength. That little phrase in the Greek, through Jesus Christ, can more literally be translated in Jesus Christ. And this was a very common phrase Paul used when he spoke of his ministry endeavors and his missional activity. Paul would use the phrase in Christ to demonstrate that he was fully dependent upon the presence of Christ in his life. And Paul saw himself as being fully 
in Christ. Paul knew that his own identity was enveloped by the truth of heaven. That beautiful verse from Colossians chapter 3, uh, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, because you've died to yourself and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul saw himself as in Christ when he made the statement, I can do all things through Christ or in Christ who gives me strength. And so I love this, this application. Paul was not saying of Jesus uh, some statement that would, would personify the, the genie in the bottle. Whatever I do, if I just ask Jesus, he will somehow make it happen. No, Paul was speaking about his missional endeavor, the purpose that Christ had planted in his heart. And Paul wrote to the Philippians, whatever God calls me to do, he'll provide and I'll be content because my greatest truth, my greatest security, my greatest fulfillment is that I'm in Christ. My identity is in him. He's my purpose and passion. And so Paul wrote, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Contentment teaches us the joy of being satisfied in Christ, of being satisfied with a life that's fully identified with, with Jesus. Oh, I pray that, that you can say with, with transparency and with genuineness, I'm content and I'm joyful because I'm satisfied in Jesus Christ. There's a final principle contentment teaches You do not have to read many of Paul's writings in the New Testament to understand Paul was a strong adherent to a spirit of thankfulness. Contentment, fifthly, teaches us thankfulness. A former professor of mine who's now in heaven, the beloved professor, Dr. Roy Fish, would say again and again to us young ministry students, to cease to be thankful is to begin to be sinful. Uh, This quote has stuck with me, obviously, for all these years, and it's just coming to my mind at this very moment. Because when we cease to be thankful for the goodness of God, our heart becomes unaligned with God's presence and provisions over our life. And then we we begin to become sinful as we become self-reliant or as we become one that desires more. And so, oh, we, we must... Understand that contentment nurtures, produces, teaches us to live in a spirit of thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us this. This is God's will for you to give thanks in all things. I love that the spirit of thankfulness is personified and lived out and the very practical expression of giving thanks to God in all things. And then the significance of this very practical position of the heart is referenced by, this is God's will for you, that you be thankful in all things. Contentment comes when we are indeed thankful. Contentment teaches us the spirit of thankfulness. Paul wrote, I've learned to be content. He was so grateful, not just for the gifts that the church in Philippi sent him while while he was in prison. He was thankful that he knew they were concerned and that they expressed in the Greek this phronane, this thoughtful love. Paul understood the 
the direct correlation between contentment and thankfulness. We're entering into a week of Thanksgiving. Now, this year has been a tumultuous year, to say the least. This year has been a year that has reminded us of some of the blessings and pleasures in life that can easily be taken away, uh, seemingly almost overnight. And this has been a challenging year indeed. But as we enter into this week of Thanksgiving, I ask you not to bemoan the year, but allow past events to ignite within you a deeper spirit of thankfulness. Look at what God has done. Look at who God is and how God has proven himself to us over and over again. Time would not allow for me to list the many personal experiences I've had with God's faithfulness, even in the midst of significant uncertainty. And so as we move toward a celebration of Thanksgiving, would you take a moment to just thank God? Can you lay aside all the, all the complaints of a year that we really have not been fond of in our own lives? And can you, can you just thank God for his goodness? I close with this story. Christian writer and philosopher Dallas Willard passed away on May 8, 2013. The story was told by Gary Moon of the last moments of Dallas Willard's life. His friend Gary was, was with him. And at the, at the very final moment, uh, before Dallas Willard closed his eyes for the last time, his friend Gary heard Dallas make this statement. Thank you, God. Gary knew at that moment that Dallas was not speaking to anyone in the room for he had this transcendent fix in his eyes. And obviously he was looking toward heaven as he stepped from this life into the presence of God. And his final word, his final spoken message was, thank you, God. Today, if, if a grateful heart can be apparent even in the throes of death, can we not be thankful for God right now, for his goodness and for his abundance that he blesses us with? Don't compare your life with another. Don't, don't be a person that is a don't have spirit. Be a do have person. Thank God for his blessings in your life. I'd like to pray with you. And as we pray, maybe today you've recognized that that God's goodness and his love through Jesus Christ is a truth you've known, but you've never accepted. And today, if you'll follow the scripture and pray this prayer, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for me and, and I repent of my sin and I give my life to you. Oh, if, if, if that is on your heart and you pray that prayer, God will hear. He'll save you at this very moment because he's good and his, his grace and mercy lasts forever. If you know Jesus and you're following Jesus, but you have been so absent when it comes to a spirit of thankfulness, it's okay to confess that to God and to say, God, I'm sorry that I've been more focused on what I haven't received and what I don't have than what I do have. And maybe today is a great day just to say, thank you, God. So as we close in prayer, 
You're going you're to see me pause for a moment to give you an opportunity to personally thank God for his goodness in your life. And then after a moment of pause, I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. You are good. And your mercy endures forever. Oh, Father God, we have, we have journeyed through some key verses in the book of Philippians that teaches us how to live out the joy of our faith. We understand the importance of investing in the gospel, and we certainly understand why we need to anticipate heaven. But Father, for this moment, help us to rest content No, all things aren't like many of us would desire, but Father, we do not have to lose our thankfulness. Help us to rest content as we thank you for your goodness. And Father, I personally thank you. I thank you, God, that you've been faithful. And your faithfulness is obvious in the midst of sickness, in the midst of uncertainties, uh, in the midst of disappointments. You've been so faithful. And, And God, I thank you for this. You gave us Jesus. How much more is there to give? And we thank you for your abundant love through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the cross and the empty grave. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. If our faith is in you through Christ, none of us have to go to bed tonight worried about sin that that needs to be dealt with. Father, we can bring that to you. We can bring you our fears and disappointments because you're good. You're a good father and will help us to trust you. But for this moment, Help us to thank you. And God, I am grateful that you called us to a spirit of contentment. May we rest content as our eyes stay on Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And together we said, amen. Hey, I'm excited about this week of Thanksgiving, but I'm also excited because when we return after Thanksgiving, we'll be Uh, in the beautiful season of Advent. The word Advent means Christ has come and we will begin celebrating his birth next week, both here online and at our uh, on on campus services. So, So please be a part of any of these services as we celebrate the birth of our Savior this Advent season beginning next Sunday. Hey, love you a lot. Thank you for being here. Have a great week of celebrating Thanksgiving with your family. God bless.